0: You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Second Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Second Samuel chapter 18. We are in the midst of Absalom's rebellion against David. And you guys are familiar with what has gone on up to this point that Absalom has, because of his bitterness and the fact that he didn't deal with the bitterness that was in his heart toward his father. Because his dad, David, King David, who was a righteous man, an amazing man, a great king, was not a very good father, and had also not been a great example to his sons, primarily Absalom, in many different ways. And the fact that he ignored what happened with Absalom's sister, David's daughter, Tamar, when their brother raped her, and David did nothing about it, and and so Absalom sat on that for a while, and then he finally just went ahead and killed his brother, and and then David basically did nothing about that, uh, and so all this chaos and turmoil is going on in David's home, which, if you remember back. Is exactly what God said would happen through the prophet Nathan, when he went to David and said, "Look, you're the man. You're in sin. You need to repent," because David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had murdered her wife. He he had murdered uh, Bathsheba's uh, husband. Excuse me, Uriah, and and then just did not repent. Did not confess it, and hid that. For a year and finally was called on it and God said look uh, you're forgiven you're restored unlike Saul the kingdom was not taken from him. He was able to continue on as king because of his humility and because he did finally confess God restored him but there was consequences for his sin. And the consequence, God said, would be that there will be a sword in your house. Your house will be divided. And there will be turmoil in your house. And that's what's happening with Absalom. And last week we saw that Absalom was making a push to finally rid David from his throne and to run him out of the nation. And to take over completely. And he had two different uh, pieces of advice. He had the advice of Ahithophel and he had the advice of Hushai. And he chose the advice of Hushai over Ahithophel. Which was according to God's providence exactly what Absalom would do. Because the advice of Ahithophel was much better from a military strategic standpoint. It would have done exactly what Absalom wanted to do, which was to win the war and to kill David and to rid him of the kingdom. And and yet, because of God's hand on David and his protection upon him, Absalom chose the advice of Hushai. Ahithophel went home, killed himself because he knew that it was over and that they were all now going to pay for their rebellion And their insubordination to David. And that's where we left off was with Absalom heeding the advice of Hushai. And it says that David numbered the people who were with him. And you remember that David has now been told because according to Hushai's plan there was time for David to make preparations. That's exactly what Hushai wanted because he was really working for David, yet masquerading as though he was on the side of Absalom. And he went and told Absalom, look, you need to give some time, you need to allow all the troops to to form from Dan to Beersheba, you need to get all your ducks in a row. And during this time, some men went to David and said, look... You need to get ready because you're going to be attacked. And so that's what David does. And he numbers the people who were with him, and he set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Etai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. And so David organizes his troops into three companies. And then he says, I'm going to join you guys. I'm going to go out to war. Unlike the the time in chapter 11 where he stayed back and then ended up in a lot of trouble with Bathsheba, maybe there was some correlation in his mind. Like last time I stayed back, it wasn't good. And it turned out to be a, a major Issue in my life and so this time i'm going but the people answered and said you shall not go out For if we flee away, they will not care about us Nor If half of us die will they care about us But you are worth ten thousand of us now for you are now more help to us in the city And so they said look they don't care about us ahithophel was right in saying that there's one piece of to this puzzle. This war will be won by killing David. And so you're our most valuable resource. You need to stay back in the city. And the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now here's something we notice about David. And David was a flawed man. He was a deeply conflicted man. But David was humble, and David was teachable. And here is the king of Israel, the most powerful man in the day, and yet he listens to advice, and he heeds that advice. And I think sometimes uh, that we assume that leadership means that we're lone rangers, that we're kind of autonomous, that we don't have to listen to anyone, that we don't really need people and their insight And that couldn't be further from the truth. A good leader understands his strengths, but he also is keenly aware of his weaknesses. And a good leader will put people around him, not that are going to make him look good, but that are going to be good for the mission. In this particular case, leading the nation of Israel. In the church, promoting the gospel and furthering the kingdom. And sometimes leaders want to put people around them who are weaker than them so that they can look better and they can be elevated and they'll be the shining star. And they don't want to really promote people who are gifted and talented and being used by God. They're intimidated by those people. And what we should be doing, whatever capacity of leadership you might be in, and many of you are in various capacities maybe in work or in your home or in the community or in the church, what we should be doing is putting people around us who have strengths that we don't have and who have abilities that we don't have. And then once they're in place, we should listen to them. We should heed their advice. We should be teachable. And it's really sad to see men in leadership in the church who are not teachable, who are not humble, who won't listen, who are intimidated and think it, it makes them look weak to go along with others' ideas. And it shouldn't be that way at all. David was humble. And David said, whatever seems best to you, if you want me to stay, then I'll stay. And now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, deal gently for my sake, with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. And so they all heard it. Everybody heard it as they were leaving. He said to his commanders, he said, I want you to deal gently with my son Absalom. I don't think there's a lot of ambiguity to that. In other words, don't kill him, don't torture him, don't beat him up. I just want you to capture him and bring him back and then we'll deal with him. And everybody heard it and they were accountable to that. And so what is happening here is there's a command that's being given. And what we're going to see is the leadership under David take that command and interpret it according to what they feel is best. And sort of the overarching theme of this particular chapter is obedience. And I think there's a couple different levels to this. Obviously, we have a God to obey. We have Jesus to obey who has given us many commandments and many things to do and many things not to do. There's sins of omission, which are things that uh, Jesus has uh, told us That uh, you shouldn't uh, do this and we go ahead and do it anyway. And then there's sins of commission, which are are things that uh, Jesus says you uh, need to do this and we don't do it. And and so there's that, the overarching uh, theme there of obedience, first of all, to God. We need to be obeying God and what he tells us to do is always right. But then there is... Uh, human obedience, as we 're placed under authority, and there 's probably only a few other things in the New Testament that are more established than that particular uh, concept of being in obedience uh, to the authority that God has placed over you, whether it be in the city, your community, whether it be in your workplace, whether it be in the church and it's something that I think we see uh, happening a lot amongst Christians uh, who say, man, I love Jesus, and they're praising God, and they're on fire for Him, and yet they are prideful, they're arrogant, and there's no humility, and they won't submit to anybody. And and what, what you hear is, well, God showed me this, and so I'm going to go ahead and do it. Well... God didn't show the leadership of the church that. So if that's what you want to do, then you need to do it outside the context of the church. And, and you see people going around that kind of uh, council and around uh, the authority of the church and doing what they feel is best, even though they've been told that that's not uh, what the leadership of the church uh, wants to do, or feels led to do, or has heard from God to do. It doesn't line up with the vision of the church. And this happens all the time. And I hear people say, well, this is what I'm called to do. God showed me this. Well, that's completely backwards. Because the, the Bible makes it very clear that God has put leadership in the church for a reason. And if you are a part of that church, you need to submit to the leadership of that church, unless there is uh, sin going on that's not being addressed, unless there is something that is uh, false doctrine or something that's opposed to God in His Word, then we would have the opportunity uh, to step out from under that leadership. But other than that, just to say, well, God gave me this vision and I think this is what we ought to do and so now I'm going to pull some people here and there from the church and get them behind my vision. That is called rebellion. And God doesn't look on that kindly uh, at all. And so that's kind of what is happening. uh, Not kind of, that's exactly what is happening uh, in our text. And I think there's a dual application. First of all, In a sense, this command that goes out from David is sort of analogous to the commands that Jesus gives us. And we know that those are without ambiguity. Those things are not to be reinterpreted by us. And when we don't follow them, it's sin. But then there is the commands that go forth from the authority structure in our life. And it's very easy for us to say, well, God hasn't shown me that, or that doesn't apply to me, or to even say, well, they're wrong in this. This is what we should do. And here's the thing, you guys, is that the leadership in the church very well may be wrong. Not morally, not doctrinally, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about less obvious things. Something that Uh, you want to do that the leadership says no we're not going to do that when that idea is good but we're going to pray about it whatever or something that you don't think should be happening that you don't think should be going on and the leadership says you know what we've prayed about it we sought the Lord and yes this is what we feel is best at that point whether you think it's right or wrong or whatever is really not the issue and if it's such a big deal for you that you can't get over it, then it might be that you need to find another place uh, to worship, to fellowship. You need to find another uh, set of gifted and called elders to submit to. But to go around them and to do your own thing is sin. Whether you think it is a good idea or not a good idea is not the issue. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, I'm called to do this. Really? Because the the scripture doesn't give you that opportunity to use the church as your platform to do whatever you want to do. And and we have all kinds of Christian needs to justify ourselves, don't we? Well, I had this burning in my bosom, you know, I had this feeling in my heart. I, I had this premonition. God showed me in his word in some obscure text or something that I pulled out that is showing me that this is what I'm supposed to do. And the thing is, is that God won't contradict himself. God won't work outside of the authority structure that he set up in your life. And if you're Not willing to submit to that. And again, you guys, we're not talking about sin and we're not talking about doctrine. We're talking about gray areas where the leadership has to make decisions that you can't flip to a Bible text and make a solid decision on. There are a lot of things that as elders of the church, we have to say, you know what? I just don't I don't think that's a good idea. Or we, we pray about it and we just don't feel that's the direction God's leading us. But it's not cut and dry. And you're going to disagree with some of those things. And at that point, you have to choose whether or not you're going to be submissive to the leadership that God has placed in your life. And it's too common for Christians to be unsubmissive, unteachable, prideful, self-righteous, filled with their, their, their own sense of what is good or what isn't good. It, it's just astounding uh, to me how many times people will come to me and basically want to tell me what is good for the church and what isn't good for the church. And even after I sit down with them and explain to them why we're doing what we're doing or why we're not doing what we're doing and, and to have them say, well, I'm right and you're wrong and my flesh wants to say okay let let's think about this logically for a second here i've poured my life into this church for 7 years i think about it probably 18 hours a day you think about it like for 5 or 10 minutes when it's convenient for you and now you're going to tell me exactly what is the best idea i mean you see what i'm saying it just doesn't make sense from a, even a logical point of view. The, the men that God has called and that are pouring all the time and energy and effort into it are going to be very often the ones that God will speak to about the direction. But going back to David being teachable, the, the leadership needs to be that. And they need to listen, and we do that, and, and every person in this church has a voice and an opportunity to speak and to say, look, this, this, this. But once that has been done, then there needs to be submission to that. And going around and and kind of getting your way by manipulating things, even though you know the leadership of the church isn't behind it, is sin. And if this happens often, that that the things that you want to do are not happening or the things you don't want to do are happening, then maybe it is just the Lord leading you somewhere else. But to be insubordinate to the leadership of the church is absolutely opposed to God. And and so I wanted to, to kind of elaborate on that because I think it is so important. And it's something that comes out of this as David says, look, deal... Kindly with my son. This is what I want you to do. He didn't ask them to have a meeting about it and decide if that was a good idea or not. And and even as I'm reading it and as I'm thinking back on it, I can sympathize with Joab who is going to disobey this order. I can understand why he would not think this was a good idea. Absalom is an idiot. He needed to die. David was the king. David was the authority structure. And this was not a cut and dry issue. This was not something that they could go, you know what? David is absolutely wrong. This is sinful. This is immoral. This is false doctrine. They couldn't do that. This was opinion. And David, as the leader said, I want him alive. And they should have heeded that, but they didn't. And so the people went out into the field of battle against Israel and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. And so David is a little bit smarter today than he was the day before when they're out in the plains. They're out in the flats, ready to just get wiped out by the enemy. And now they, they take the battle to the woods. And the people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David. And so there's a civil war going on now. David's men against Absalom's men. And David's men are winning. And a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. And so the destruction of David's sin continues on. The devastation, the repercussions just continue. And here are 20,000 more lives killed because of David's sin. Yes, because of his ignoring the sin that was going on in his household and not dealing with it. And because of Absalom's bitterness and rebellion toward his father. And all of that led to all of this death and destruction. And you guys, we've talked about it many times. But our sin brings death. The wages of sin is death. Not just literally that at the end of your life you're going to die. That's part of it. Certainly, and not just spiritually, in that if you don't know Jesus, you will be separated from God and have eternal death. But daily, sin brings death. It kills families, it kills marriages, it kills careers, it kills people's reputation, it kills people's ministries, it kills churches. Sin kills, it brings death. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside. And the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. And that is really interesting. The woods. And does it say exactly what? And there's some Jewish legends that say wild animals uh, went and killed these people or that they were sucked up in bogs and, you know killed by trees, you know, kind of like Lord of the Rings, trees coming to life and taking dudes out or something. There's all kinds of Jewish legends about what this means. The woods took more people than the sword. But basically the bottom line is that according to God's providence, again, God took care of it. it. It didn't even need to be David and his men God was going to protect them and God was going to ensure a victory, whether it was by sword or whether it was just like a mystery. Like, how did all those dudes die? They're just like laying dead over there in the woods. And it was because God was with David. And whatever is happening, you guys, in your life, whatever's happening, if God is for you, who can be against you? If God's hand is upon you, he will protect you. He will provide for you. He will ensure victory for you. Even in the midst of your sin, even in the midst of bad decisions on your part, God will carry you through. You might be thinking, well, you know, I've made some really bad decisions and I've, there's been sin in my life and I've been in rebellion to God. And, and so this is just punishment for me. This is just God punishing me. And nothing could be further from the truth because that's not how God works. God is not going to just let you go because you sinned or because you were in rebellion. He's not just going to say, well, you're on your own now. Forget you. He will carry you through and there will be repercussions, certainly. But ultimately, you will end up victorious because God will ensure victory for you just like he did for David, even though David deserved really to lose, even though David very easily could have just been totally left out to dry by God because of his sin and poor decision. But that isn't what happened at all. God protected him. And even we see God's providence in the woods devouring more people than the sword. Then Absalom met the servants of David and Absalom rode on a mule it doesn't sound like a really powerful military figure riding on a mule you know i don't know if he thought that one through very well or not but absalom's kind of a weird dude he makes a lot of really funky decisions and i think this is one of them riding in on a mule and the mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree and his head caught in the terebinth so he was left hanging between heaven and earth and the mule which was under him went on. Now, often you'll hear people say that Absalom was caught by his hair. And the text doesn't say that. It says he was caught by his head. Now, it seems to make sense that it was his hair. You remember earlier that we read that his hair was just luxurious. That his hair was like a hair that, that women covet. You know... When he cut it off, it weighed like five and a half pounds and he cut it once a year. This was the kind of hair he had. But it doesn't say he was caught by his hair. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Whatever the case, he's in a precarious situation. He's hanging between heaven and earth. And he's unable to do anything about it. His mule takes off just like mules would do. You would expect that, right? to see this stubborn mule like man I'm glad to get rid of you anyway thing takes off now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree seems funny right so Joab said to the man who told him you just saw him and why did you not strike him there to the ground I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a belt I don't know about the belt. The money sounds cool. I don't know what kind of belt it is, but apparently that was something valuable. It's like, I'll give you 10 shekels of silver and a belt. Okay, cool. (laughs) But the man said to Joab, though I were to receive a 1,000 shekels of silver, which is a boatload of money, though I were to receive a 1,000 shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Etai, saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. And so this particular dude that saw Absalom hanging in the tree, that Joab said, Why didn't you kill him? This guy had it figured out. He understood obedience. It wasn't about his interpretation. It wasn't about him saying, well, I think this is a better idea. I think we ought to get rid of Absalom. How many tragedies, how many really, really terrible things have been done in the name of I thought? How many times have your kids said that to you? You know, I thought this was the better thing to do. And it's like what I say to my kids is, look, I'm not paying you to think, you know. Obviously, it's a joke, but it's like, look, you can think when you have your own house. Right now, I do the thinking for you, okay? And, and that's not what I asked you to do. And, and the same, you guys, is true in all facets of life. If God has not placed you and called you and gifted you to be a leader then you need to submit to the leaders in your life. And even if you are a leader, you ultimately have leadership in your life that you need to submit to. And if you're not willing to do that, you will travel down a very precarious road, the same road that Joab travels down here. A road that basically says, like children do, well, I thought. And you know what? Sometimes you will be right. And sometimes it'll work out, and you'll kind of luck into some good decisions. But there is going to be a lot of times where you devastate people around you, you ruin relationships, you offend God, and you sin because you're not willing to submit. And wives, this would apply to you, certainly, as God has called you to submit unto the, the husband that he's given you, whether or not you think he's a good leader is not the issue. There's a leadership structure that is the order of things in the universe. God the Father, Jesus Christ, who has willingly submitted to the Father. The men that God has placed in leadership, whether it be in the home in the community, in the government, in the church, the the people that God has placed in leadership in those different structures, which in the home and in the church, I believe, are males. And in the government and in the community and in business, that's a whole different story, a a whole another conversation. But let's just talk about the home and the church. It's the male leadership that God has placed. And I don't think there's any question about that biblically and there's no real struggle to substantiate that and then god has placed people under those leaders the father jesus christ the male leadership and they are called to ultimately be submitting to the father and by doing that they're submitting to the leadership in their life and it isn't about well i thought this was a better thing and that's what Joab does. I mean, as the words are going out of David's mouth, don't touch my son, Joab's going, ah, screw you, David. Good idea, but screw you. That's totally what he's saying. And, and it's sad to see that. It's sad to see that in the heart of Christians who who are... Fired up for Jesus and praising God and reading His Word. And then there's this huge issue of pride in their life. And often they don't see it. And then they wonder, why isn't God using me? And why isn't God blessing me? And why am I not being totally a part of of His work? And and what is going on? And, And this is the issue. And this is the issue for Joab. This unnamed... Anonymous guy got it right. He said, look, I heard the command. There wasn't a question. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. For there is nothing hidden from the king. And you yourself would have set yourself against me. Then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. In other words, I don't even want to argue with you about this anymore. I've made up my mind. I know what's right. And there could have even been on the part of Joab... Some conviction there. He didn't want to hear it anymore because he knew this guy was right. It's like, look, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to hear from you anymore. I can't linger with you anymore. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart. I guess one wasn't enough. And again, this is just the bitterness and the rage. It's kind of like crimes of passion. You know, when somebody's stabbed like 14 times. Or shot, you know, four or five times. He runs three spears through his heart, which really speaks of his chest, this torso area. And apparently, three wasn't enough because he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. So, can you picture this? He's hanging by his head. He's got three spears sticking out of his chest. He's not dead. And ten ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. So deal kindly with my son and shove three spears into his chest and then have ten men beat him to a pulp. I don't know. I don't know if... Maybe Joab didn't hear him clearly. Maybe there was, you know, some miscommunication. No, not at all. Joab, like I said, said to David when he heard it, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do my own thing. I know what's best. So Joab blew the trumpet. And the people returned from pursuing Israel. For Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods. They don't even give him a decent burial, just throw him in a ditch and laid a large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. So those that were in rebellion to David, they knew it's over. They ran home. And now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself. Shocking, right? That he would set up a monument to himself. This is just sort of Another uh, defining attribute of Absalom. He was completely full of himself. Which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And to this day it is called Absalom's monument. And so the first 18 verses really speak of the murder of Absalom. Which is exactly what it was. Because there was a direct command not to kill him. And Joab did it anyway. And now, from verses 19 to 33, we're going to see David hearing the news and and how that news is brought to him and some of the implications uh, that it has. Then Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run now and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And so Ahimeaz wants to take the news to David. He, he, He really wants to go tell David... And, and yet, Joab said to him, you shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall take no news, because the king's son is dead. And so, Joab is wanting to spare Ahimias the grief of telling David this news. He doesn't want him to have to do it. He's going to send, in fact, a foreigner to do it. He, he's, he's trying to protect Ahimias Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. And Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, Why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? And so apparently there's a couple different thoughts here. Maybe Ahimeaz didn't know what happened at all and he just wants to go that doesn't seem likely though because why would he want to go tell David if he if he knew nothing I I think he did know but he just didn't know the details he didn't know all of the implications and so Joab says look you you don't have all the the information you're not going to go but he goes on Ahimeas says but whatever happens let me run So Joab said to him, go ahead, he just gives in, Go do it, dude. Then Ahimeaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. So either he took a different route that was like a quicker route, or he was a lot faster than the Cushite. Whatever the case, he beats him. And Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate, to the wall, lifted his eyes and looked, and there was a man running alone, which in that day and age, would have told you that it was a message that was coming. This is like an email, you know. And If, if you see a whole bunch of dudes running, then you know that that's like a war. Somebody's being chased. So there's there's a, a battle going on. But one dude running was, was a message. And so the watchman cried out and told the king, And the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there is another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. So it's like a second email coming in. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimias, the son of Zadok. And so maybe this dude is really quick. He's like a track star. Because from a long way away, they recognize, man, this guy's quick. This has got to be Ahimias. Either that or his running style was so jacked up that you could recognize it. You know, maybe he's bow-legged or something. But they recognize Ahimias. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. See, more than likely, Ahimeas was a messenger who always brought good news. And that's why Joab didn't want him to go. Because this wasn't good news. But Ahimeaz, I think, knew some of the details, knew that Absalom was dead. And in his mind, he assumed that was good news. Joab knew this isn't good news for David. This is good news for the kingdom, at least in his interpretation. This is good news for the nation. But he knew that David wouldn't take it as good news. Ahimeas thinks it is good news. And he's typically one that brings good news, as is evident by the king saying, he's a good man, he comes with good news. I know this guy. He, he's always the one. He doesn't come and say, I've got some good news and bad news. Which do you want first? He comes and says, I've got good news all the time. And that'd be a cool job. So Ahimeas called out and said to the king, all is well. Then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. And so, see, Ahimeas thinks this is a good thing. David, your enemies have been taken care of. And the king said, is the young man Absalom safe? David had become rather myopic in his dealing with his son. He really isn't concerned about the kingdom. He's really not concerned about all of the repercussions of what Absalom is doing, undermining his authority and taking the kingdom from him. He's really not concerned with any of that. All he's concerned with is, is my son safe? Which on one hand, as a king, is not good. He had become short-sighted. But on the other hand, as a father, it is good. Because it shows that David had a father's heart for his children. That no matter what Absalom did to him, he loved him. And he graced him out. No matter how many times he stabbed him in the back. He slept with his concubines on the roof of his house in front of all of Israel in a way to shame him and to publicly disgrace his father. And yet David still is concerned about his son. And I think that tells us a lot about a father's love for his children, but I think it also tells us a lot about our heavenly father's love for us. And that no matter how many times we've rebelled against him, we've sinned against him, that we've cursed him, that we've doubted him, that we've turned our back on him, that we've shamed him and disgraced him publicly. No matter how many times, he loves us and he cares about us and his concern is for us. Almost as if we are the only people alive. Like the father in the story of the prodigal son who went out each day and waited at the end of his property. To see if his son would come back. Waited there. That's the heart of our father. And that's his heart for you. And that was what motivated him to send his son. And to to secure relationship with you. And the king asked, is Absalom safe? And Ahimeaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me your servant, I saw a great tumult. But I did not know what it was about. Now, it seems at this point that Ahimeas, who's probably not stupid, realizes, "Oh no, this isn't good news." The first question out of David's mouth is, "Is Absalom safe?" Now he realizes, "Crud, I don't want to tell him he's dead." Uh, well, there was there was commotion, there's a lot of stuff going on and I didn't really know what it was all about. I mean, you could take it either way. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe he just wanted to run and give a message of some kind. But it seems like at this point, he's now covering himself and saying, look, the Cushite's right here. He's the one that's supposed to bring the news. I don't have to do it. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Just then the Cushite came And the Cushite said, there is good news, my lord, the king. So he too thinks it's good news. For the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord, the king and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said thus, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, O Absalom, my son, my son. And so just the cry of a father who realizes that in a lot of ways he brought this upon his family. He brought this upon his family through his own sin, through his own indulgence as a father, through his own irresponsibility to take care of the things that were happening in his household. And he realizes it. And the, the weight of this is crashing in on him. And it's a horrible place to be. It's a horrible place to see the effects of your sin in the lives of your children, in the lives of those that you care about, And you guys, it ought to motivate us to obey God, to honor God, to serve Him, to not bring destruction and death into our families. Because it is heart-wrenching. And it's something you carry around with you. And David would carry the weight of this for the rest of his life. And something interesting about this is that Ahimeaz was so anxious To get to David, even though he really didn't have a clear-cut message. He didn't really have all the details. He really wasn't the one that was supposed to bring this message. And yet, his delivery was swift and was more efficient. And and it looked pretty, it seems, but it really fell short. You guys, we've been called to bring the message of the gospel to a lost world. We've been called to bring the gospel and really to bring good news. Ahimeaz was one that was called to bring good news and this wasn't the time he was supposed to do that, but typically that's what he would do. And we're called to bring good news. But if you aren't someone who has a good, solid understanding of the word... If you're not someone who understands the gospel, then when given opportunities, you're going to stumble and stammer and not have anything to say. And that really shouldn't be the case. You should be ready. You should have something to say to, to anyone that would ask, as Peter says, to be ready to give a reason for the and a hope for the the hope and the peace that lies within you. To be ready in season and out of season. And it may not be the the greatest delivery and you may not articulate it just perfectly, but you understand the gospel. And it's really unfortunate when you talk to Christians who have been saved for years, have been going to church for decades, and you ask them, can you... Explain the gospel to me. And they don't know how. Or they'll say, well, you know, it's about Jesus and stuff. You know, it's about the Bible. It's like, well, that's not good enough. You need to be able to go to scriptures and, and to take people through the plan of salvation, whatever you want to call it, God's plan of redemption. And be able to show them that they are sinners, and that Jesus came to save sinners and the hope that they have beyond this life. And you should be able to, to take them to scriptures that talk about our assurance of salvation. And you guys, ignorance of the of the scripture is really not funny. And sometimes people will say, Well, I just don't know the Bible that well. You know, you're you're a pastor, that's what you do. And you know. No one's asking you to become a theologian or a historian or to have the Bible memorized. But you guys, we ought to have a good working knowledge of the word, of the gospel, of being able to take people through it in a clear and cogent fashion. And if you're a new Christian, man, make that your goal, to to really understand what you believe why you believe it. And if you're someone here who has been saved for a while and you don't know that, and you couldn't clearly, scripturally articulate the gospel, then start today to become a student of the Word. That Paul told Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. And when I hear all of those things, study to show yourself approved a workman it makes me think of diligence and labor and and that's what you're called to do is to to labor and to know the word and it isn't always easy and there will be questions and there are people around you the leaders in the church and and others that you can go to and ask questions but don't continue in your ignorance be a student. Be a reader. Ask for good book recommendations. Never be satisfied with where you're at. Because the world is looking for a reason for the hope that lies within you. Your neighbors need it. The person at the grocery store needs it. When I used to work at Costco, I would come in. I was the meat wrapper and the the meat cutters had already been working for three or four hours by the time I got there. And so they had already sort of, you know, been on a roll with good jokes and their crude, you know, kind of um, just thoughts. And I mean, it it was a crazy place. So it would already be in full motion by the time I got there. So I was sort of like stepping in to Comedy Central. And the first question that they would ask every day that I walked in they knew I was a Christian they knew I was studying to be a pastor and was interning and and they they would ask me what's the word for today what's the word for today I don't know what they did with all those words for today (laughs) I think they just used them as fire fodder to stoke their fire to make fun of me more but awesome opportunity And I knew going in, as I was walking through Costco toward the back, and I could see the guys through the windows, I knew I better come ready because they're going to ask me, what's the word for today? And you know what? A lot of times I didn't have much to say. Just sort of get going with life and overwhelmed with whatever's happening in your life that day. And, and you get caught up in the moment. And you show up. And what's the word for today? And you got nothing to say. You know it's kind of like your Facebook status. You know and you think. I've got nothing to say today. How many times? It's like I've got nothing to say. But you know what? We ought to have things to say. Th- there ought to be a new song on our heart. There ought to be a fresh word from the Lord. As we're daily walking with him. And, and you guys if If that's a struggle for you and and you don't know the word, man, plug in. Talk to me. I'd love to point you towards some resources that will help you in in that area. Talk to those who are students of the word. Ask them to disciple you. And, And you guys, I'll close with this. But in my 12 years of ministry or whatever it is, and and all the people I've led to the Lord, and all the people I've discipled, I can almost tell you just 100% of the time, and it's not always cut and dry, but pretty much it is. Those people who come forward in an altar call, or pray a prayer, or say they want Jesus, or get baptized, all those things, all those public demonstrations, the confession of your mouth, and all of that, which... Really, none of that ensures salvation. You, we don't know what's happening in someone's heart. But every time someone comes to Christ, there's basically one thing that I've seen that will determine if that person goes on to maturity, into service, into using their gifts, into leading other people to Jesus, and discipling, and being on mission. One thing, and it's their hunger for the Word every time. I've seen people who, like a firecracker, I mean they're just lit up and boom and that's about it. And there's no hunger for the word. There's no desire to get into the word. There's really no follow through with offers of discipleship. When you say, look, we'll we'll hook you up with someone you can be discipled. Ah, no, I'm not sure. I don't have time. I'll get back to you. They don't do it. They're not in the word, and they, they say, oh, I just don't get anything out of the Bible, and I'm not reading it, and you talk to them, and no, I'm not in the word. And those people just ee, just fizzle. And the people, 100% of the time, I don't care how they got saved, you know, a prayer coming forward, whatever it was, but if they'll get plugged into the word, they grow, and they stay on fire. They're not a firecracker, they're just, they endure and they continue, and they they grow in him, and they get on mission, and they lead other people to Jesus. You guys, I've seen it that way every time. And so the message that you've been given, are we being faithful with it? Do we know it? Can we articulate it to a lost world around us? We talk a lot about mission and being on mission, and Ahimeas wanted to be on mission. I mean, he had that down. But you guys, message and mission go together. We can be on mission, but without a message, we're not on the right mission. And so we need to have a firm hold on the message and then go out on mission. And when you combine those two, God will use us powerfully for his glory. Let's stand and pray together. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for 2 Samuel Lord, and just all the things that we're learning and and growing in, God, and the things that you're doing in our life. God, the challenges that you're putting forth to us. And Lord, as we talked about several different things tonight, Lord, I just pray that whatever it was that was for us, that, God, we would take it, that we would apply it, that, Lord, we would truly want to be doers of your word, that your word would produce fruit in our life. God, for your glory. God, may these things not just go in one ear and out the other. God, may they truly sink down into our heart and produce fruit for your kingdom. And God, I do pray that you would produce a hunger for your word within us. God, we we want to long for you. Give us an insatiable hunger and thirst for you. God, may your word not just be a means to more knowledge and information dump. God, there's lots of things that we pursue to, to know and to get information about. And that's really the end of it. So that we can do well at trivial pursuit or sound really smart. But God, with your word, may we not just want to win Bible trivia or know little obscure facts to impress our Christian friends. God, may it be a hunger for you and for your glory. God, so that we might grow in you and know you as you desire to be known. God, that's what we want and that's what we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, you may do so at our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378 Prineville, Oregon 97754. Once again, thank you for listening and God bless.